Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show. If you like what we do, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. You can also find us on Rumble. But that way, more people will find out about our content and you'll be notified every time we do a new video. Our guest today is retired Marine Colonel Eric Ferris Buer. Something I've always wanted to say, Buer, Buer. Anyway, he's author of the compelling new book, Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps gunships on the opening days of the Iraq War. Colonel Buer flew attack helicopters. His deployments took him to the Persian Gulf, Somalia, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He commanded in combat, served on the staff of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs as a professor of national security strategy at the National War College and as an air group commanding officer. He's currently senior executive for an aviation and training company. He is also a consultant and public speaker in the areas of military and commercial aviation and global conflict. Colonel Buer, we appreciate your service to our country. How are you today? Doc, I'm great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me uh, with all your great listeners. Thank you, sir. Now, before we get to your book, The Ghosts of Baghdad, since you do have so much military experience and you speak publicly about global conflict, I'd like to begin our interview by addressing the unfolding war in Israel. The attack on Israeli civilians by Hamas on October 7th has been described by many as Israel's 9-11. What, what are your thoughts, sir? Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Uh, you know, what's happened with Hamas, with the backing of the Israel, with the uh, with the Iranians, uh, and as you see immediately, uh, what Hezbollah is doing to the north uh, out of out of uh, out of Lebanon, out of Beirut, uh, it, it's it's it was a massacre, and they need to be held accountable. In the most, uh, the Israelis will hold them accountable. Clearly, that's uh, that's what they they uh, plan on doing. But in a, absolutely an abomination uh, against all all levels of civility anywhere. It's, uh, it's, it really was so disheartening to watch. Now, a lot of liberals and mainstream media, but I repeat myself, have said, well, I guess it's okay if Israel retaliates, but not if you wind up killing one innocent civilian in the Gaza Strip, and yet I'm seeing videos of people protesting in Gaza saying, you know, they, they don't care if Israel has said, get out of there, we're warning you. No, 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 we're going to stay here and make martyrs out of us. And, you know, this is war. And if Hamas is intentionally discouraging people from leaving the Gaza Strip in a time of war, what is Israel supposed to do? I mean, it, it's child abuse if parents are making their children stay in a in, in a war zone, and yet the Israeli military can't really act as child protective services for for people in the Gaza Strip. That that's a, a difficult position they're put in, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's there's really no reason you know, that you know, Hamas shouldn't have planned for this. You know, Hamas is very self serving. They clearly have their own kind of perverted uh, end state in mind, but they they don't care about the people. They don't care about the Palestinians. If they did, they would have stockpiled food, and they would have ensured energy sources. They would have had water. They would have had uh, negotiations with with Egypt. Clearly, that border is porous, and clearly, the way out for their civilian population is through Egypt, or or another, you know, through Jordan or through other, you know, really Arab or Islamic countries that would support them. 
Um, we, we know they're going to use them as human shields. They, they count on that. If you look at the grotesque, um, you know, settings yesterday at the hospital, uh, clearly that's the Islamic Jihad, right? The Islamic Jihad is, they don't care about people. They don't care about the Palestinians. And the fact that they had attempted to, to turn that as an attack by the Israelis on the hospital uh, when they had misfires with their, uh, reported misfires with their missile systems, it just goes to show their complete lack of respect. And of course, the English-speaking mainstream media is like, well, there you go, 500 dead at the hospital as Israel and Hamas argue with each other about whose rocket was responsible. And now it comes out there aren't 500 dead. The hospital's still standing. It looks like it probably was a misfire of an Islamic Jihad or Hamas rocket that landed in the parking lot next to the hospital and caused a small fire. And yet the people who consume their news from the mainstream media, they think that Israel intentionally targeted a hospital and killed 500 people. Yeah, that, that's the very dangerous part about that. But you know, I, I have some confidence in this. I, I you know, unlike any other, uh, many other conflicts, the level of uh, transparency by the Israelis, I find is really impressive. I mean, they, they're immediately in front of these stories uh, they're showing live streaming videos of what's right uh, or what's happening right there on the scene or what's not happening. So I, I think they're doing a very good job. And that message has to keep coming out. And that message, I believe it, it will penetrate uh, through mainstream media because there's only one aggressor here. Um, they've been the same aggressors since 1948 and the same folks have looked to wipe them off the face of the earth for, for generations. Uh, and this is nothing new for them. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm it's refreshing to see the Israelis have the ability to, uh, through the media, uh, keep the story consistent in what appears to be very transparent. Amen, brother. Okay, so Joe Biden is already headed back from Israel. He went over there to speak to the Israeli prime minister in the middle of a war zone. Can you imagine you having experience on the staff of the Joint Chiefs? Can you imagine the Joint Chiefs when the idea came up saying, sure, great idea. Uh, yeah, go visit Netanyahu in the middle of a war zone, President Biden. Yeah, good luck. We're not going with you. I mean, who? it doesn't make any sense to me. Right, and I, I have clearly no uh, no information, back you know, backdoor information on uh, the, the, the building of it. But the idea was a summit, right? The idea was a Jordanian summit. You could bring in the, the leaders of, Hez you know, in this case, you bring in the leaders uh, of Lebanon, uh, ostensibly representing Hezbollah, Hamas, and you find a way to have some uh, open dialogue. Of course, that uh, after yesterday, they used the hospital um, as the uh, as the example for it to tumble. And I think that the president was left uh, holding the bag, and he just can't cancel the trip. I think he has to make good on his promise, uh, regardless of who actually, you know, it was a big party, and, and, and no one showed up. So uh, he has to show up. You know, you make a very good point here. Because the king of Jordan, the prime minister of Egypt, two countries that we give plenty of foreign aid money to are like, uh, nah, you know what, um, got a prior engagement. Don't, don't think I'm going to be able to make the meeting there with Joe Biden and your secretary of state, Anthony Blinken. What does that say about the respect or lack of respect that heads of foreign governments around the world have for the guy in our Oval Office. 
You know, I think uh, the Jordanian response is much more problematic to me than the Egyptian response. The Egyptians, you know, of course, they've had a, in the most very recent history, have had to deal with a tremendous amount of uh, civil war and strife. Uh, so it makes it easier for them to say we're going to, you know, even passively support our Muslim brothers and sisters by, uh, you know, sticking our nose um, up to the Americans. I, I, I think they smell weakness. I think they smell a sense that there's no there's no price to be paid for this. And so I think they they, they bought themselves some uh, yeah, they bought themselves some some good some good uh, some good faith with their with their diehards. No question. Okay, so it's being reported in the media. Admiral John Kirby, communications director for the National Security Council, told reporters aboard Air Force One on the way over to Israel that Biden planned to meet with Netanyahu and the Israeli war cabinet to, quote, ask them tough questions, unquote, about their war plan and their strategy in Gaza going forward. What, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me there's a lack of communication. He should know exactly what they're doing. As one of our, as our lead ally in the in the Arab world, Israel sits in a position that represents a lot of U.S. interests. So the fact that he would say he needs to find out what they're doing, or kind of just you know, hey, tell me what you guys are doing over here, seems a bit immature. Uh, we should know, and I'm sure we do know exactly what their plans are. I mean, they're they're flying F-16s, F-15s, they're flying F F-35s, they're flying the most modern uh, equipment in the world. We we sh we have a very good idea what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Um, you know, it, it comes across. He maybe couched it as a little tongue in cheek, but it comes across as a complete lack of understanding of foreign policy and what our allies are capable of doing. Well, to me though, the implication is also that the. Biden administration, and I always feel like Obama is lurking in the background somewhere, doesn't really want Israel to hit Hamas too hard. Um, because, you know, I'm old enough to remember the eight years of Obama and how he wasn't a big fan of Israel and how he said, hey, Iran needs to uh, step up and be a major player in this part of the world. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. They're the bad guys. They're the ones who call Israel the little Satan and us the great Satan. Why are you sending them all this money? And, of course, Biden continues. Um, I mean, let me put it this way. Why does it seem like Israel is the only country in the history of the world that when it's attacked, faces demands to not defeat its enemy, but just mount what they call a proportional attack? Well, why do you think that is? I think it's a location, right? I think it's where they sit. That they sit in such a you know strategic part of the world. Uh, they are in the middle of everything. I mean, they're bordered by you know they're clearly they're they're bordered by their enemies, um, and they continue to uh, have to find new ways uh, just for their own survival and existence. And the relationship with the United States is critical. It's it's their it's their true lifeline to the rest of the world. Um, so from a very practical sense, uh, they need to maintain a very close relationship to the U.S. And it it, hamstr it really does hamstring them. Um, Their they're push into Gaza is, is so problematic on so many levels, um, from a military perspective, clearly, from an operational, and then really just from a kind of a global, kind of geostrategic position where they can be seen as the bad, they'll be portrayed as the bad guys. 
uh, always, even though they're in a war of survival. It's uh, it's that is often muted by you know pictures of of children and in you know and women and, and old people being you know being killed in what would be uh, perceived as uh, Israeli aggression. It, it's a very difficult position they're in. Uh, I go back to their level of transparency, their, their their strategic communication with the world, saying this is why we're here, this is what we're doing, this is why we're doing it. Um, yeah. And so I think that's their strongest position. Yeah, I just think back in the history of warfare, uh, as recently as World War II, we we firebombed uh, Dresden, Germany, and probably killed a hundred thousand civilians. And I'm thinking back, thinking, well, I wonder if some of those folks hated Hitler, some of the people killed in the firebombing at Dresden, and and wish he wasn't in control. And odds are probably so, and yet we had a war to win, but. For some reason, the powers that be, uh, including the people in charge of the U.S. government at this point, are pretending that there's a possibility of a two-state solution with people who continue to show their true colors when they come in and just start raping women and slaughtering children. And we're supposed to think that, well, yeah, but they're... um, I saw this guy, this uh, John Mearsheimer guy, this uh, teaches at the University of Chicago, did this interview with uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano the other day on a, on a podcast and saying, well, you know, um, yeah, the military, there's no military solution. Got to be political. Got to have a two-state solution. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. In, in the wake of what just happened, you're thinking that you can negotiate. What, give up a little bit more land for peace? Like that's worked? And Napolitano's just shaking his head. Yes. I'm like, what am I not missing here? This is insane. I think you got, when your enemy shows how bloodthirsty, how cruel, how brutal he can be, you got to destroy that enemy. And, and like you said, though, Israel's in a very difficult position um, with the U.S. going, well, no, I don't think we really want you to, to destroy them. Um, I, I don't envy the situation that, that Netanyahu and his war council are in. No, I agree. It's that, it's that argument where, um, I listened to some folks the other day, you know, we, the world needs bullies occasionally, right? We, some people just need to be taught uh, the right way to act, the right way to, 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 uh, to maintain themselves. Um, and it, 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 it permeates all levels of society. And so people that believe they can act with impunity, they believe that's because they say they're right, they're right, is absolutely, it's ludicrous. Um, Hamas is going to be held accountable. You know, the easy way would be say, hey, just, we'll call a ceasefire, you turn, you turn over all your, all your unknown leaders and your, and, your, and your terrorists to us, right? That's never going to happen. And the Israelis know if they don't fight back, if they don't push hard, they'll be seen as even weaker than they already have been perceived by the Hamas, by Hezbollah, who didn't even take but two days to begin firing on northern positions of the Israelis. Uh, absolutely incredible. Um, the bigger problem becomes Iran. Iran is the Iran is their is their is their source of everything. It's a source of training. The Islam the Islamic the Republican their guard comes in. They train them in a way that uh, we're we're very familiar with. They fund them in a way we're very familiar with. Um, it's the pressure on the Iranians that I think should be the hardest. Um, and we've got two carry battle groups sitting out there that is an amazing deterrent. Um, 
And I wrote recently a piece that, you know, the Israelis are known for, for doing some pretty impressive long-range raids of themselves in these times. Uh, the Iranians know it. Uh, the Iraqis certainly know it as they ran F-16s into nuclear facilities. I think the Iranian the, uh, the Iranians should be prepared for anything. Um, if I was Iranian defense ministers, I'd be wondering exactly where the uh, Israelis are going to strike me and when and how. They talk tough, uh, but I mean, the Iranians are flying old F-5s, F-4. They're flying 60-year-old aircraft, right? They they really don't have the ability to project power. Um, they should be worried about their own safety and security right now. Um, that, that would be something I would be uh, extremely concerned about. Uh, never mind supporting your Hamas and your Hezbollah, your brothers and sisters. Yeah. Your home front and your, uh, your, your life as they know it, particularly the senior leaders in the uh, Iranian government need to really start considering uh, where their position is. Yeah, and, and at this point, you, you look at the theological angle, you look at the religious angle, that the mullahs apparently believe in this 13th imam who um, won't come out until there's chaos in the world. And you start to wonder, those of us who are old enough to remember the nuclear standoff between the Soviet Union and the United States and the idea of mutually assured destruction. So Brezhnev or Khrushchev or whoever would not launch nukes on us. We would not launch nukes on them first strike because nobody wants everybody dead. And then you look at the Iranian mullahs and you wonder, do they really want to be martyrs for Allah? Does the idea of mutually assured destruction work with guys like this who think, well, you know, this is what I believe religiously. And it, it, it really makes people like us who are coming from such a different worldview wonder what really motivates these knuckleheads. Well, religion plays a massive part, as we all know, and there's still a great divide. So this is something that is often you know, Hezbollah and Hamas are as at odds with anyone we've seen. Right. So we're talking Shia and Sunni, fundamental differences, fundamental disagreements in religion. It's the same with how we've the Saudis have been brought in to be some type of uh, negotiator with the Iranians. Again, a Shia state and a Sunni state. They do not see eye to eye. Uh, Iran sees himself as the, as the regional hegemon, right, in, in, their own, in their own right. Saudi Arabia does not see them in that light. So as much as they believe they can, you know, that's, that's what makes it difficult for the Iranians. They're now isolated. Who is gonna help negotiate any type of, any type of long-term ceasefire, long-term, de-escalation of this. It won't be the Iranians. They're, they have no, they're, they're not credible. Uh, they're not respected. And so it brings in the Saudis. And what the Saudis brings in another entire different problem set. Uh, religion plays a fundamental portion of that. Again, the Sunni and the Shia divide is very great. Of course, Hamas and Hezbollah, again, Sunni, Shia. Um, there's so many complexities that make this a very, very difficult problem set. Again, I don't want to get away from what the Israelis have an absolute right to do is to defend their state, to defend their nation, defend their people. Uh, and first and foremost, I think um, Hamas and Hezbollah are going to take um, a beating like they've never taken before. I believe that. And if the Iranians want to put their nose into it, I believe they're going to take a beating as well. They're paper tiger. Um, and I think the Israelis will prove that. Well, as long as we're talking about religion, I think it would be appropriate to say 
to your contention there from your lips to God's ears. I certainly hope so. Our interview with retired Marine Colonel Eric Buer, author of the compelling new book, Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps gunships on the opening days of the Iraq War, will continue in just a moment. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas or C1, which only weighs two ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Mike Lindell says, because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, he's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bedsheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bedsheets, only $39 a set. Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29. And twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once in a lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all season Moccasin Slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slippers Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. 
MyPillow.com. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. And now here's more of our interview with Colonel Eric Buer. And I, I do think it was interesting the other day that Governor DeSantis actually said that Iran's mullahs act based on their religious and ideological worldview because usually politicians, elected leaders, want to act like there's no connection between religion and what the bad guys do. They're just bad guys, and we don't know why. And some people are even like, well, gee, I wonder what we did to cause. No, like you say, there is quite a religious component. But, you know, I I did find it interesting that you were suggesting in, in the best of all possible worlds, if Gaza would just give up the leaders of Hamas, you know, that might help things. It kind of reminds me of before we went into Afghanistan over 20 years ago, because that was the staging ground for Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Uh, the uh, President Bush, the U.S. government said, hey, you give up Osama and you save a lot of bloodshed and we won't attack you. And Taliban basically told us to take a long walk off a short pier and and there you go. So speaking of Afghanistan, when you saw the chaotic, haphazard withdrawal from Afghanistan as as uh, a military veteran, what, what did you think about that? Well, it was a disgrace. It's a national disgrace. It's uh, it's it's undefendable. I mean, we we had 20 years of allies, people we told to trust us, you know, people we told would. We'd never leave you, uh, count on us, uh, and we left. And we left them to their own. We left them to the word. We left them to savagery. We left them to be fending for their own um, in a way that uh, is, you know, it's a scar. Really, it's a scar on the soul of the nation. It, it's not going to go away. Um, and other allies, they look at us probably in a very similar light. You know, what what's the pressure point that you'll you'll cut and run with us? Why do you think you'll ever stick with us? Why do you believe you stay with us? And again, that's how we lose we lose credibility nationally. It's we just talked about how quickly can the, the Egyptians and the Jordanians just thumb their nose at a president and say, hey, we can't meet you. We're kind of busy today. Um, it, it's all all related. So uh, how we left Afghanistan is, I mean, uh, books can be written for generations uh, and sadly, Generations of Afghans are going to pay the price for intervention. Um, we'd like to think we left it a better place, but uh, we left them in complete turmoil. We left it in chaos, and probably most, you know, uh, importantly, is a lack of a better term is we left them exposed. Right? They everyone knew, you know, when once the Taliban had access to the Ministry of the Interior, Ministry of Defense, they, they had files and people and addresses and names and pictures. And, um, it's just uh, it's just very disheartening. So my understanding is that if we had conducted the withdrawal through the Bagram Air Base instead of just closing it up in the dead of night and not even telling the Afghan government and forcing the withdrawal to be from the airport in the middle of Kabul, a major metropolitan area that was indefensible. And we wound up getting 13 of our service members killed there. 
But if we had just done it an orderly withdrawal from Bagram, maybe the 13 would still be alive and maybe we would have been able to get a lot of the people that had been helping us and trusting us all those years out. Yeah, it's it's so difficult to predict what would have happened. It, just in my mind, just as I as I look back on it, you know, there, there's there, there's so many there's so many pieces of our intervention in in Afghanistan that were parallels to our intervention in in Vietnam, unfortunately. Um, and we left in the same manner, um, in, in many ways, the same manner we left Vietnam, really as a national embarrassment, uh, leaving allies behind as they were literally being swarmed by their by their sworn enemies. Uh, it, it made it very difficult. It, it would have taken a, a, a much longer term commitment to have a realistic way and a realistic dialogue with the Taliban to say, hey, you can have back what you want. But those who don't want to be here, those who shouldn't be, they, they, they need to be able to have an option. Um, and so it never got to that. It was it was all or nothing. It was a full nation build or it was nothing. It was a win or it was a loss. And time was on their side. It made it that made that very difficult. So the parallels are going to be talked about. The way we left the nation is going to be talked about. Um, but our credibility is what's always left in the wind. Absolutely. So. The other day, um, there was some talk about bringing refugees from Gaza over here. Uh, uh, Nikki Haley, one of the um, candidates for Republican nomination for president, seemed to think that was a good idea for a couple of days until she walked it back. In the meantime, a reporter asked uh, Governor DeSantis about it, and he said, well, the one of the things that's problematic is not just that in Gaza they're taught anti-Semitism from the cradle, but also he said, you know, as a, as a JAG in Iraq, one of the things I found out when I went over there, the idea that they want the same kind of democracy that we have over here. Oh, no, 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 that, that's foreign. You know, a lot of the people over there want Sharia law and we can't just impose our ideas of freedom and liberty on them. Now you spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan. What, what are your thoughts about that? I think you're right in a lot of ways. You can't expect to uh, immigrate cultures, nationalities, religions, and expect them to freely assimilate. We've seen it in the United States. We've seen it in multiple enclaves in the U.S. where they propose Sharia law. Again, how can you propose Sharia law in in, in certain neighborhoods in Minnesota. I mean, it's just absolutely un-American. Um, and so I think what this current administration has learned with the with really a fully open border policy, which no other country in the world would support, is that we can't even account for who's here or why they're here or what they're doing here, or what they want here. It's great to be, you know, a kind of a weaponless dreamer and think that we can save uh, everyone that's that's not our job you know it's just not who we are um i i don't think there's a place necessarily for um you know the emptying of the gaza strip into the u.s i think they have brothers and sisters right there in jordan in in egypt they have they have an entire culture there they have an entire you know continent that's designed i'm, I'm not saying anything against immigration or or uh, people trying to better themselves and come to the u.s and contribute to the u.s uh, and contribute to the American dream 100%. Clearly, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that 
you just can't make bold statements that we're going to pull tens of thousands of Palestinians and plot them in the middle of America and think they're going to do, uh, they want to live the American dream. They don't understand what the American dream is. Um, and we have no idea how we can even begin to think like they think. And we can't ex you know, expect them to assimilate in, in ways that took generations for, you know, Europeans to assimilate. So it's, it, in a lot of ways, particularly this time and place, it's a, it may be a bridge too far. Yeah, I think you're right. Now, in a perfect world, next November, we would elect a new president, one who wants to build America back up, not continue to diminish everything that we stand for. In a perfect world, the new administration coming in 15 months from now would need people like you to help strengthen our military. What advice would you give a new SecDef January 2025? I would tell the new Secretary of Defense to talk to his service chiefs. His service chiefs are there to, to recruit, train, and equip. They're not there to socially experiment. They're there to take the best and brightest we have in this country, train them to defend and love this nation, and serve, understand a, a sense of service and why that is so important. Whether they serve, you know, three years, four years, or 20 years, it doesn't matter. They should leave the service with a better understanding of what it means to be an American, what it means to be a good citizen, and take that, you know, that expertise and bring that back to their, back to their communities and their towns across the country, and and be a be an advocate, you know, be a zealot for America of of what we are and of the great things that we are. Uh, everything else is noise. Everything else has no place. It's quintessentially un-American. Um, because it highlights the few who uh, want to have a, a, really a, a greater vote than the many, which is uh, which is dangerous, number one. Uh, and it's a morale killer, among other things, number two. And it's not going to build us a, a stronger military. So that, that's what I'd tell uh, whoever replaces uh, you know, the SecDef. Uh, that would be my uh, be my two or three sentences on the way in. But I'm not a I'm not a voice, you know, uh, in the wind, there's there's a lot smarter, more more experienced, dedicated professionals who have served this great nation that would tell them the exact same thing and probably a little more articulately with more detail. Um, but essentially, at the end of the day, that new secretary of defense is going to have to make his or her own decisions for themselves. Uh, they're going to have to hopefully have the tools and the wisdom and the latitude to make those decisions that best represent all of us that are now out here in the civilian world. And, uh, hoping and praying that our, our next generation is, uh, we really do know the next generation is better than we ever were, but that continues that growth and development. Well, I've been reading your new book, Ghosts of Baghdad, and I think you're a pretty sharp fellow yourself. Um, so let's talk about that. Why, for our viewers today, why is it called Ghosts of Baghdad? Well, uh, there's there's a lot of reasons. I don't want to spoil it, but I tell you, nothing nothing really scars uh, the soul than a good dose of horror. And uh, and I, I I tell you, I felt every uh, I was a night in this book. I was a I was a night flyer, night flight lead. And uh, there's things that happen to you when you're flying at night that reminds you of when you're a kid, right? Um, you don't always need to hear a door slam to know you're not alone, right? So you know, I always felt someone was out there with me, someone chasing me. Um, someone out there to, to kind of just, in, in, in lack of a better, is just to destroy us all. So the ghost rep represents a lot of things uh, to a lot of different people. Uh, 
but the book itself lets me tell a story. It's not my story. Um, it's, it's, you have to see the world through my lens, uh, either fortunately or unfortunately for that. Um, but I, I, I'm excited to tell the story of so many I serve with. Um, and it's, it's distinctly from my perspective. Um, but I'm really proud of that because I, you know, selfishly, I got to spend hundreds of hours with old friends. Um, and we just had a chance to sit down and talk and, um, Things I thought I was experienced alone, um, I was not. You know, things I thought I was doing that were, I was never going to survive, or this is my last event, you know, my last flight, um, I was never alone. And that, that, you know, that was even with my co-pilot who sat, you know, three feet, three feet away from me in the front seat, or my wingman, or other flight leads who are roommates and close friends. So it was a great opportunity to talk to a lot of people, uh, get their, you know, get their perspectives. And then uh, and weave that into a story that, that really has an opportunity for you to hop in the front seat and, and experience what it's like to, to be an attack helicopter pilot for, in this case, 27 days um, and, and really, really kind of embrace uh, what we had to uh, really push ourselves through. You know, it's interesting that you make the comparison between being at war in the invasion of Iraq in a horror movie. I, I recall a few years back, the movie came out called Dunkirk about the evacuation of the uh, British military from the shores of France when the Nazis were, were closing in over to the UK. And the reason that I decided to watch the movie is I read a review from a, a conservative, I wish I remembered who it was, who said, you know, it's not really a war movie. It's a horror movie because there's this unseen uh, enemy uh, that fills everyone with a sense of dread. And I remember thinking, well, I've never really thought about it that way. But, you know, here you are, um, highly trained to do this job. And I guess you're you're going into the situation in, in a helicopter hoping and praying uh, that the anti-aircraft artillery of Iraq doesn't shoot you down. It had to be a very tense situation for you for those first 27 days. It was. It, it began with the first night. Um, it, it did. It began with the first night where we would land. We landed after the first night thinking, you know, we're, we're never going to survive this. We can't do this again. We just can't. Um, Moonless night, uh, sandstorms, uh, a very uh, determined at that time and, and growingly determined enemy. Um, and the next night you get back in the cockpit and you fly for another 12, 13 hours. Then you do it again and you do it again. Um, but as I, I think I talked through the story, there's, there's so many other people out there that are counting on you, the people that depend on you, people that know you're there. There's, there's these things that drive you uh, that you never thought you had. You never, there's places you... You, you, you kind of dug yourself out of kind of mentally or emotionally that you never thought you could, you could dig yourself out of and you just press and you just, you just keep pressing on. And I, you know, I get to talk to, I get a chance to talk a little about the, about the Marines we support. And that's really what it's all about. And again, I'm biased as a Marine, every Marine's a rifleman. And, you know, there's no reason I can't be pushing myself and my wingmen through a, through a sandstorm in the middle of the night to support armored Reconnaissance units. I mean, they're out there doing it. They're under, they're under tremendous pressure. They're under enemy fire. If they're there, 
you know, we're there. And so this great sense of teamwork, this great sense of camaraderie uh, was always there, but it forms and it solidifies. And you'll re you see as the story goes, we, we all face challenges that we really th never thought we could overcome. And, and we day by day, you know, hour by hour, we get, we get better. Uh, and we, we find a way to, to keep driving. The conclusion of our interview with retired Marine Colonel Eric Buer, author of the compelling new book, Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps gunships on the opening days of the Iraq war is coming right up. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the general Mike Flynn silver coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. If you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier, Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Patriot Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Yeah, let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef, raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone. This beef is known as Never Ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. 
This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me and I'll have one of my guys contact you. buyonlyusa at proton.me. And now the conclusion of our interview with Colonel Eric Buer. You know, the way you describe not just the moonless night, but the sandstorms for people of a certain age, it brings back the story of the hostage crisis when Iran had, I think it's something like 44 Americans held hostage. And late in the Carter administration, the decision was made to try to do a rescue attempt. And I believe we lost maybe eight or nine service members and a couple of helicopters that were downed in the midst of a sandstorm um, all those years later when you guys were going into Iraq and flying helicopters with very little visibility in sandstorms. Were you keenly aware of, of that history going back to, I guess, 1979 or 80? Desert One was a, a, a seminal point in uh, aviation, helicopter aviation, joint operations, certainly, uh, where you're trying to mix Marine crews with Air Force crews and heavy lift helicopters and, and transport uh, refueling aircraft. Um, so for me, what, you know, I had a chance to serve previously in some pretty uh, challenging environments. Uh, you know, I refer back to my time flying in, in Somalia, I call it, you know, Kind of pre-Black Hawk Down and post-Black Hawk Down, where I, where I had, had an opportunity to serve there. Um, the weather is, is is its own it's its own weapon. The weather's the enemy. It's it's another weapon for the enemy. It's another weapon against us. We have to find a way to defeat. My purpose of talking about weather and the night in these environments was the, all these things come together. Like you know, thinking enemy, an agile enemy, uh, a sense of mission and kind of a sense of urgency for us. You combine that with um, moonless nights and really sandstorms that we faced for the first week heavily anyway. Um, they, they all form uh, an opportunity opportunity for us is just to fail, right? So it's 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 ripe for disaster. It's ripe for tragedy. Um, and that's just the backdrop. Um, it's the backdrop that we all have to survive in. Those Marines on the ground, those soldiers on the ground, those, those, those soldiers flying, uh, their Apaches and their Blackhawks and, and the Marines flying our, flying our helicopters. Uh, that's just a backdrop. That, that's just the, that's just the, that's just the norm. And so we got to find a way not just to survive, but we have to excel in that environment. And so that's, that was a great challenge. Uh, that was, I, th- I believe in my mind makes the story so compelling. Uh, so many people working so hard, uh, for a common goal. Yeah, one of the things people like me who had no military experience don't fully appreciate until we read a book like Ghosts of Baghdad is the challenges that you guys face. I mean, we're saluting the flag and saluting you guys and saying thank you for your service. You know, when we're having lunch somewhere, see someone in uniform, thank you for your service. But unless you've been there, unless you've been through the kind of things that 
you have been through or at least read a book like Ghosts of Baghdad, we really don't appreciate the challenges that you guys face. But after all these years, as you were interviewing other people, obviously there's still quite a sense of camaraderie there, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, another one of the great pieces, I've, I've had emails and, and texts and people get hold of me and phone, people I don't even know that have called me. And it, it's been emotional. Um, about, you know, it. I didn't fly Marine helicopters, but I flew Air Force, so I flew Army, and, and they had been in similar situations where they've, you know, they you know, almost crashed their helicopter doing this or that, and they're, you know, trying to insert troops or, or rescue a wounded soldier or sailor or airman, and they just, they can they can relate to what I'm saying and, and, and into the story. Another reason why I wrote the book is to ensure that your neighbors, you know, you know, your neighbor who served or a, or a cousin or a or a niece or a, or a nephew or a aunt or an uncle, um, someone who's living in your community, you can read something that is topical, that is very cop- topical to us. The war in Iraq is, uh, you know, clearly uh, not in the distant rearview mirror for all of us and, and perhaps have a better understanding of them, understand what, what he or her went through, understand that there's more to it than what they saw on television or what they what they hear people talk about in the news or on shows like you and I have a chance to discuss. But um, those are real people uh, that are that are giving real sacrifices to the country. And it's and they should be, you know, at least recognized or understood. Absolutely. Amen. So. On a lighter note, because sometimes even in the midst of a war, there are periods of just Absurd humor. There was a guy who was the official press spokesman for the Iraqi government <laughs> under Saddam, yeah. who came to be known by the affectionate nickname Baghdad Bob, who would go out in front of the world media on a regular basis and say, oh, no, 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 no. No, the, the Americans are nowhere near us. No, we, we're taking these bad guys out. No, that's never going to happen. As troops were rolling into Baghdad, he's in front of microphones going, oh, no, 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 no. So I'm wondering, and obviously you guys are flying helicopters. You're not going to do much on the ground. But wouldn't it have been fun to meet this guy and say, oh, by the way, you're not going to believe it, but we're actually here. Yeah, that was uh, that was entertaining. Uh, that he was always interesting to watch uh, as he's giving these um, the talks, and you could hear uh, you know artillery rounds or or uh, uh, other explosions going off in the background. It, it was it there was so much about that regime that was comical because you know there was only one king, and the rest were just a bunch of court jesters, and they had to find a way to appease their king. Otherwise, they'd find themselves you know as as Stalin did to his, as Saddam Hussein did to his, as any despot does uh, to anyone, as the Iranians do to theirs, right? They'll find themselves hung by their thumbs or stoned or they'll simply be disappeared. So, yeah, there was enough court jesters to go around in that, that regime. Yeah, and he was even asked after uh, after Saddam's regime fell, he was even asked about it. He's like, hey, man, you want me to cross Saddam and, and, and wind up 
you can execute it myself. I'm just just a guy doing a job. Yeah. So dovetail perfectly with with your explanation there. So I got to ask you. I got to ask you. Uh, retired Colonel Eric, and then it says in quotation marks, Ferris, viewer, how'd you get the nickname Ferris? Well, I think it was growing up in the squadrons as a young lieutenant. Um, I seemed to dodge. Uh, I seemed to get myself into trouble and find a way to dodge myself out of it for the most part. Dodge senior, dodge the flack of senior officers. And so my first squadron commander gave me the call sign and I would much rather prefer, you know, the assassin or, or the ninja. Right. But that doesn't happen. You don't, you don't get those. And, and, uh, once you have a call sign, you, you can't change it. It's there for your career. So you embrace it. So it's not like your CO or somebody reminded anybody of Ben Stein in the Ferris Bueller's day off movie going as I did on the introduction here today. Bueller. I mean, that, that didn't actually happen. No, it didn't go to that extent, but I, I suspect potentially there was a combination of things that uh, led to it. And, you know, once your commanding officer says that's your call sign, there's, you, there's no debate. Uh, the gavel has been, uh, the gavel has been pounded in a forever you'll be known as, and you just smile and wave. Absolutely. All right. Uh, retired Marine Colonel Eric Buer. Uh, this is such a compelling new book, Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. It's available everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Of course, uh, at, at your your website, uh, please give people the uh, URL for your website. It's ericbuer.com, E-R-I-C-B-U-E-R, ericbuer.com. You can absolutely order through there. You can order through my my publisher, Ballast Books, but as you mentioned, yeah, if you if you Google it, it'll pop up uh, any place you want to uh, order your book. It's available on Kindle, Audible, certainly in hardcover, um, and uh, yeah, we uh, we love and appreciate your support. Yes, sir. And of course, going forward, we live in a very dangerous world. Do you have any parting thoughts for our viewers today? Uh, you know, like I am, I'm, I'm confident. Every day, I'm confident. Um, I'm in a great part of the country. You see young people here every day in the military. Um, you know, be, be confident. Uh, the next generation is is going to take great care of us. Uh, they're going to defend our nation. They're as smart and as agile as we ever were. Uh, I'm eternally optimistic. And uh, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see that optimism turn into reality. I certainly hope so. Again, from your lips to God's ears, uh, Eric Buer. Uh, God bless you, sir, and we wish you Godspeed. Thanks, Doc. Appreciate it. It's time for our Tweet of the Day, brought to you by Red River Auto. Red River Auto, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online at redriverauto.com and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Tweet of the Day. Today's tweet of the day is from the cartoonist Bosch Faustin, creator of the anti-jihad superhero Pigman and winner of the Draw Muhammad cartoon contest. And here's what he says. Since Marvel Comics debuted its Muslim superhero, Ms. Marvel, in 2013, over 70,000 people 
have been murdered in the name of Islam. And Marvel Comics ignores that carnage. And in the wake of the worst attack on Israel by Muslims, Marvel's Muslim superhero will make her film debut. Propagandists. That's what they are. That's Bosch Faustin with today's Tweet of the Day brought to you by Red River Auto at redriverauto.com. Tweet of the Day. You've been watching episode 412 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a Terribly Messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. And that's the way it is, Wednesday, October 18th, 2023.